Hello, welcome to another season of Life After Advertising. I'm your host, Janice Tan. This series features iconic individuals in the advertising and marketing space who shifted gears and took on a different career path. The first season featured industry players including Linda Locke, Matthew Godfrey, Anne Ridwan, and Jeffrey Sia. This season, we will hear from another group of individuals who have carved out a niche for themselves after stepping away from the advertising and marketing industry. Joining us today is Mark Nicholson. While he is widely known for being the founder of Private Members Club 1880, Mark also spent time in the ad land. One of his defining experiences was his time as owner of a now defunct agency named Rocket X Media. In this episode, Mark shares why he ventured into the ad land and eventually left, as well as how his father inspired him to start up 1880. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on our Life After Advertising podcast today. Before we get started, could you probably tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Hi, hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, great. So uh, my name is Mark Nicholson. I'm the founder of 1880, which is a members club in Singapore and uh, Robertson Key. I see. Okay. So what made you wake up one morning and decide, okay, let me start 1880. And how did that idea come about? Really what, what happened was um, I started to think about the membership club model. So I, I had lived in London before I came to Singapore. London is probably Mecca for the private member model. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There, there, and it was When I moved to London in 1996, it was the same year that um, Nick Jones founded uh, Soho House. And I thought, that was just genius. What they did was disruptive to, to a very old and traditional model. Clubs were usually, you know, homogenous places. They had dress codes and they had, you know, rules of etiquette and, and they were just sort of uptight, you know, I don't know, places where you celebrate the people who built the country from the previous century, right? Mm-hmm. So our house was like this cool thing. You couldn't wear a suit. Uh, they had a beautiful aesthetic and they catered to the creative industry. And I thought that's, that's amazing. And it, it never left me. I, I really loved everything that they did. And, and when I came to Singapore, um, a few things became very obvious to me. Uh, so I've now lived in Singapore for 19 years. I came here in 2002 and then, you know, immediately um, Singapore went into SARS Uh, and and I, I really learned a lot about Singapore at that time. Um, one of the first things I learned was that the quality of people here is outstanding. You know, um, people are extremely well-educated. Uh, people are doing great things. The energy in Singapore to me is phenomenal. And, you know, I would, I would go to like my children's, you know, three-year-old birthday party and I would stand beside, you know, somebody and 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 I'd say what do you do and so oh, I'm I'm a venture capitalist and I'm investing in technology or you know I'm I'm uh, the third employee at Salesforce or I just joined the Apple team you know and I was just like wow all of these amazing people how where's the hospitality solution where you meet these people because it's definitely mm-hmm. not at the tangling clubs and the american clubs and the you know tanameras and whatever and and so how how do you where's that and So that was that was a really big um, driver. Uh, so then I, I started to piece together the idea of, of the membership club model. And then when I was looking for, okay, well, why would this club exist? So one of the things we often ask ourselves is, if you took all the clubs in the world and you stuck them on the island of Manhattan, you know, and I'm in, you know, Annabelle's, the Arts Club, the Battery, uh, Soho House, 
everybody. And, and 1880 was there. Why in the world would anybody walk into 1880? What is the reason 1880 exists? And, and so that, um, for that, I looked to uh, a tradition that started in my parents' house when I was about 12 years old. So um, my father um, started something that became known as the Nicholson's Wednesday Night Economic and Political Salon. Wow. Okay, so, so, yeah, well, so I wasn't in advertising then, so we, we could have used a bit of a branding expert on that. But anyway, <laughs> my mom and dad would invite, you know, their friends and they, they could be doctors, uh, economists, um, people who worked in, in creative fields, artists and, and theater directors and writers, finance people, uh, academics. Uh, and and my father would sort of come up with all these amazing topics. In fact, what he did is he, he taped all the news all week long. Um, CNN, Al Jazeera, Canal Plus, and, and then he would edit um, snippets of a topic down into like a 45 second introduction. So for example, Israel-Palestine conflict might be hot in the news. And so my dad would take news from all kinds of places and then invite his friends. You'd have about 30 people around the dining room table. And then my dad would say, okay, Mark, you are now the head of the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli government, and, and you over here, you're going to be the head of the Palestinian Liberation Army. Okay. And then he played the news and he'd watch it and Israel's attacked and Palestinians have, have shot an Israeli. And, and then he'd say, okay, um, Mark, why did you encroach on the Palestinian land? And so you would immediately have to pretend to be thinking like an Israeli, but obviously sourcing your own opinions and your own perspective and your own value system, right? And then a conversation would happen, you know, people would put their hand up and say, oh, well, you know, this thing. And, and uh, it was incredible. And that might last a half an hour. And mm -hmm. then he'd switch topics really quickly and suddenly it'd be about technology or it'd be about interest rates and inflation in the stock market, or it would be about the colonization of Mars. You know, it, it just, it moved very, very quickly uh, and it could go on, a single night could go on for four hours, you know, so um, just amazing. So because of what I saw my father do, uh, we wanted to make that an integral part of 1880 and, and to hold talks. We did it in a slightly different way, but the spirit and the objective is always the same, which is to allow people to share ideas, to kind of give yourself access to other ways of thinking and other perspectives and, and to challenge your own conventional wisdom. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and these, these topics can range from frivolous to, to very serious, but what happens uh, before and after is always amazing. You know, it's always, of course, done with a spirit of politeness, respect, and courteous discourse, if you like. Uh, and, and afterwards, you know, whether you agreed with each other or were, you know, very opposed to each other, everybody joins together and has a drink and, and a laugh, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what we do. So that, that once, once I sort of figured that out, well, you know, what if we could hold really great conversations and what if the club could actually stand for something much bigger than just a, a member's club, then it was like, okay, now I really, I really get it. Now I really want to do it. Okay. Wow. That was really inspiring. Thanks for sharing that story about your father. So it seems like you have lived through two pandemics. I mean, the first one being SARS and the current one is COVID-19, of course. So what are some takeaways you have learned from these two incidences? Okay, that's a good question. Um, particularly because you asked me about the, the first round with SARS and, and what happened in Singapore. Look, I strongly believe that there are many positive things that have come out of 
this sort of global suffering. Um, I think in many ways it's brought us closer together as uh, humans. Um, you know, whether you live in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Brazil, in Singapore, in London, New York, uh, in India, we we are all kind of equally going through the same fears of of whether this thing is going to hit a family member or ourselves, and and whether our our loved ones are going to make it through this and and what have you, and it it sort of just leveled the playing field for everyone, and and I believe that we become more attached and more sympathetic towards each other and just a little bit kinder to each other. You know, how many times have you heard people say, oh, you know what, I got on a Zoom call with my college friends, or I got on a Zoom call with my, my primary school friends, and that's something that you never did before. So these long lost relationships that maybe existed ephemerally on Facebook now became, you know, hey, how are you doing? And, and mm -hmm. um, how are your parents? And I'm literally still part of WhatsApp chat groups that, that came directly out of, out of COVID and out of lockdown. And I find that really touching. And I think when you amplify that, multiply it by the billions of people who are, who are doing the same thing, it's terrific. So does that mean the new norm is, is, is love, peace, and hope? I don't know, right? But I, <laughs> I think it's, it's super important to, of course, you know, this is, this is terrible. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. It's, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are elements of this that I think we should we should strive very hard to hold on to and to to maintain for as long as we can going forward. I'd like to talk a bit about um, your life in advertising. So, Mark, could you tell us a bit a bit about your life in advertising and why did you leave? It's funnier to ask me why I got into it actually, uh, because um, I, I did a sort of a weird thing. I bought an ad agency. Uh, so I wasn't like an ad guy. I didn't. I didn't start as a as a an intern and and get coffee for for crazy creative directors and and work my way up the ranks. Um, I actually went looking for a business to buy in Singapore. So it, you know that that sounds a little bit douchey, but I I, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to sort of uh, to to buy a small business, you know, and and so I went looking and I I looked at all kinds of weird things. And, and then I walked into Rocket X. It was in uh, oh that beautiful uh, Batman building where Atlas is, Parkview Square. And they had a really cool decor and everyone was wearing black t-shirts. And, and I was just like, okay, this is, this is like cool. I wanna, I wanna come here every day. I didn't really wanna go to the reinsurance company's office every day that I was looking at. And so I made this um, leap uh, and bought into advertising. I, I paid less than $400,000 for this business. It was losing a ton of money at the time. Um, we had about, I don't know, 20, 25 staff uh, and some really great accounts. Then I went and sought the advice of, uh, of friends that I knew that worked at Ogilvy or, you know, with uh, TBWA or wherever. And one guy said something to me that really scared me. He said, you know, most of my friends are trying to buy their way out of advertising and you just bought your way in. And I was like, oh, that's funny. And then I was like home alone and I was like, well, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and then like not very long after, I, I was like, holy shit, this is a really hard business, right? It's a real slog and people work really, really hard. And, you know, we, you, you do these pitches on GBiz and there are 35 agencies, all equally brilliant pitching for a $500,000 account for, for the MOE 
And every year it goes to the same agency. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was just like so much effort being put into pitching it and and your your hit rate could be very very low and that's just soul destroying for the team and I, I didn't understand how an industry could ask its most creative people to put all of this work in up front and show it to everybody and then not know whether they were going to win it or not and mm-hmm. not get paid for that process it was insane you know, uh, health promotion board. I'm sorry, I'm going to name names here. <laughs> but I remember they they called a pitch on like, you know, they announced the pitch on December 22nd, and and the the submissions were like December 31st. We had to call people back from Christmas holidays to to help you know put the whole thing together. And and I recall that, that our submission was was utterly horrible. Like I'll never forget the deck we put together. <laughs> uh, it was like an anti smoking campaign and. We had skulls and children. It was just terrible. Um, so anyway, I found it, I, I, it got very frustrating. We did some amazing work. Uh, we picked up the EDB, which was great. Uh, um, you know, we did, I, I thought we did a lot of really fun stuff. But uh, ultimately, we were, you know, just a, a boutique through the line agency. Um, we didn't do a lot of digital stuff. We, we did, um, you know, in many cases, we became somebody's partner on on a bigger campaign you know so we we do work for stan chart or you know what have you but yeah so that that was kind of how i got in and that's not even your question you asked me how i got out um well so how i got out is in in fact our agency went bankrupt and and that was um one of the hardest saddest most difficult things that i ever went through as a as a professional like I, i i took it really badly it was a it was emotionally, um, it was a failure. Like it's, it's, there's nothing you, you can say, oh, well, I could blame, I could blame the economy or I could blame the clients. I could blame the industry. I could blame my staff, but th- there's nobody to blame. There's, there's just yourself. If you're an entrepreneur and, and you fail at your business, you will ultimately say to yourself, that was on me. And when you have to um, hand over the reins to a um, bankruptcy agency and you are at that moment forbidden from going into your company, but your staff are still working. I mean, it's really soul destroying. And when you say to somebody who you've worked with for years, you know, I can't pay you anymore. And I'm really sorry that you just got married and have a baby on the way. And we're really counting on your paycheck. That is that it's really hard. That sucked. Um, so yeah, that's a big share. wow that hit me too i I feel sad now (laughs) i I can't believe all the emotions you had to go through back then it must have been really intense oh my god Um, you know it it is but there are so many great things that came out of this right like we had partnerships with other agencies and and media companies you know and and we you know when, when you start to do the 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 worst thing which is you you're moving money around you know like a client pays you um so that you can go and buy ads on, on this media and you take that money and use it to pay your staff and just hope to God that you're going to get more money from another client so that you can go pay for the media. When you start doing that, you know, we were very rigorous in the beginning, but as, as the wall started to cave in, um, we started to do that. And, and then you become, then people get mad at you. It's not just like, Oh, that's unlucky. It's like, wait, you, you manipulated this thing. You, you screwed us over. That really hurts. What I couldn't believe was actually when I started 1880, I went back to a lot of those people and I said, hey, I'd really like you to join the club or I'd, I'd really like you to help us get this thing off the ground. And in, in 
in almost every single case, like I think absolutely, um, these people are now really good friends of mine. Um, some of them came on the trip of the Dalai Lama. Uh, they've, they've supported us. We've partnered in different ways to do all kinds of events. And to me, that that's like, it, that's fantastic. It's just, uh, you know, I, I just love that, 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 that part of the process. Mm. So Mark, I know in a previous conversation with us, um, you said that there was a, there was a last pitch that you were hoping to win that could turn the yeah. agency around. So while that was going on, was there ever a point where you just wanted to leave? Yeah. Uh, yes. So that was really hard. Um, I, I suppose I can, I can name the, anyway, it was a bank, you know, and, and it was a pitch that was run by, by one of the agencies here. I think there were 13 agencies uh, invited to the pitch. We were by far the smallest agency and it took nine months and, and it was during those nine months that the world was collapsing. It was, you know, sort of a 2008 financial crisis and, and we had our full team. And, and when you're going through that pitch process, you know, a lot of your listeners will know you have to submit details about all your staff, you know, and you have to say, well, this is how big my staff is. And these are the people that handle the below the line. These are the people that do the above the line. Here's our copywriter. Here are the suits that are going to manage your account. Here's the strategic guy who's going to put this whole thing together. And that's it. And that becomes really a big part, you know, of, of whether the client is going to go, yeah, we pick you because we can rely on this team. And in many ways, it was very sad because we got all the way down to the final two. And I was like, wow, if we win this, that's it. Like we're going to triple in size and, and we'll be out of debt and, and everything will be great. But any proper business owner would have said six months before, when you could see the writing on the wall, when you can see their, their you know, clients are canceling work, clients are, are dropping budgets, right? Like we were heavily exposed to financial sector, property sector, and government sector during the financial crisis in 2008. And all those sectors just dried up, right? But yet I was like, I can't, I cannot let any of the staff go because maybe we'll win this account. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a really bad business decision. You know, I had friends that were like, Hey, rule of thumb, when you got a cut, you cut deep and you cut fast, you know, don't, don't go for a 20% pay cut, get rid of 80% of your staff. And I just, I couldn't do it. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't mature enough at the time. I believed in in fairies and and godmothers and 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 uh, and pixie dust, and I thought, yeah, like we're gonna we're gonna hustle our way out of it. It meant that when we had to close the company, the hole was that much deeper. So so yeah, that that was a very hard business lesson. Well, okay, let's talk about something more cheerful. Okay, <laughs> thanks for that sharing <laughs> session. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so even though you left advertising, you know, I guess it's still safe to say that you're still in a space that requires creativity. So what would you say are elements of advertising you learned that you incorporated into 1880? Okay, I love that question. So the very first thing is I, I love the people in advertising. Like I, I loved hanging out with people. Uh, and I, I, you know, whether on the creative side or on the suit side, I just, I, that, that element of advertising was amazing. And I guess in many ways, we, we run a very creative team. We work with an amazing ad agency. So, so the branding agency that, that did all of 1880s uh, brand work was, was um, TSLA, uh, just really wonderful people. I, I love them to death. Our design agency that, that, you know, created the magical space that we live in. Uh, Timothy Alton um, was amazing. 
and 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 then the opening team and and Proof and Co, who who are the drinks team, putting that group of people together and and, and coming up with uh, what became 1880, that was one of the most um, you know just amazing, fun, uh, um, talented, creative processes that I've, I've ever been in. So that, that was cool. Everybody got along. There was a lot of mutual respect. Um, that was just, just, yeah, I love that. And, uh, and, and on a daily basis, we think about, I suppose if we ran it like an agency, it'd be like every day, a brief comes across our table. Um, it's my wife's 40th birthday. Um, we want to do a salon talk on, on, you know, artificial intelligence or cryptocurrency. Um, we, we want to come up with a party to celebrate, you know, for Formula One, right? So like literally every day we are getting briefs like that and then solving them as a team. You know, we have, a, we have a, a, what I would say is our creative director, a head of events, and, um, and we have a chef and we have a bar team and all of us collectively figure out how are we going to make this an amazing experience for this group of people, you know? And uh, and the great thing is, all we have to do is is you know serve the drinks and and serve the food. We do not have to really hope and pray that people respond to the ad campaign and and then track it and monitor it and figure out the return on on you know advertising spend. So I get the best of the ad world and and ignore the hard part. Okay, so what's the best part of your job? I literally think I have the best job in the world. The purpose of 1880, if you like, is to inspire conversations to change the world. And the reason we say that is because we believe very strongly that it is through conversation that we learn and, and adjust our values. So when, when you and I have a conversation about some ethical issue, um, I, I may not have considered something from your point of view. And so my conviction um, may get a little bit dulled, you know, my, my sharp edges might, might, might become a little bit softer because I think, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't really seen it from that point of view. And so we do that all day long. We, the, the sort of, you know, foundational part of 1880 are the salon talks and the salon talks, we can talk about any subject matter, whether it's, you know, what are the ethics that belong in artificial intelligence to whether smartphones are making our kids dumber or, or whether you know genetic modification is something we should be doing to to babies, and when we get to do those talks, I mean we meet phenomenal people, we hear great ideas, and really we see a lot of I suppose a lot of friendships happen, uh, a lot of business deals happen, um, and a lot of projects happen. So it's it's amazing, yeah. So that's that's what I do all day is is sort of I suppose if, if I do have a role, it's like creative director of this club. I see. Okay. And you also get to make things happen. Like what you said earlier on, you know, you get to make friendships happen, see business deals happen. So you're in, you're in the center of all that activity. And I'm sure it's really exciting for you too. Am I right? Yeah, no. So exactly. The club opened in December, 2017. And since then we've, we've held literally hundreds of silent talks um, in, in 2019 we went to visit the Dalai Lama, you know, we took wow. 85 minutes. Yeah, we, we chartered a plane and we flew to India and, and we had a three and a half hour audience with his holiness. And, and that was just the most amazing experience. Not only because you're in the presence of one of the wisest men on the planet, 
but because you're you had 85 people with very diverse backgrounds and and interests and levels of spirituality or religion and and the three and a half hours that we spent with him was in fact only just a small part of the whole trip uh, and all that time we got to spend together was was just sort of you know a lot of fascinating conversation we, we met the president of the government in exile and and had dinner with him and that was incredible we do a lot of that stuff which is amazing but then we also do you know really fun things like drag bingo and and speed dating and um you know kind of whatever we can we can think of because at one level yes we do the conversations at you know sort of a high intellectual macro level but at another you know another sort of purpose behind the business is to kind of solve for loneliness Mm-hmm. And during COVID, that that just became the most important thing, you know. How yeah. do we keep people feeling connected to something and to someone um, during lockdown? How has the pandemic impacted your company, and how did you guys pivot? Yeah. Okay. So initially, it was devastating. I mean, obviously, um, we okay. So we hold between a hundred and a hundred and fifty events a month. And, and that sounds like a lot because actually, well, it is a lot. It's, in, it's insane. That means that on any given night, we could be doing three, four or five events in the club. So that could be, a, you know, a talk on freedom of the press uh, or uh, a wine tasting in another corner. Um, you know, somebody's 50th birthday on the terrace, uh, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So immediately, I'd say when people understood what was happening with COVID, so maybe in February, all of our event booking disappeared. A large part of our revenue comes from brands that come and uh, hold events at 1880, you know, whether it's Cartier or Tiffany or, or what have you. And uh, that evaporated. Uh, then we went into full lockdown. And of course, we faced a lot of problems. Like, what do you do when you have a membership model, but people can't attend the club? You know, and every club around the world went through this. You, you have to compensate your members. Either you say to them, okay, we're not going to charge you a membership fee because it's, it's not ethical, or you do something else. So we, we did, I, I couldn't believe that this happened. We actually asked our members to help us support the staff. And so we, we set up a, a kind of a foundation and uh, we raised $40,000 wow. uh, to help support um, some of the staff who were, who were stuck in Malaysia or, or people who had to, to go home to be closer to their families in, in the Philippines and, and uh, yeah, mostly in Malaysia. Uh, so that, that was amazing. Like we, we couldn't believe it. Uh, super, super touching. So then, of course, we, we had to switch to um, a sort of an online um, restaurant because so uh, I, I think one of the the strongest things about 1880 is the food uh, and so you know like many many restaurants in Singapore we hustled to form partnerships with Rab or or whoever we could and uh, and that was really difficult and and the margins don't really make a lot of sense so in the end we wound up renting a car and and sort of three and four of us were were driving food around all day and um, and that was incredible so then we started to package things in different ways so that if mm-hmm. you had a friend who was having a birthday, you know, members could send them a birthday cake or we organized silent talks on Zoom and we would say, you know, maybe we, we, did, a, we did an evening around sake and, and so we got a speaker 
and we we sent drinks to everybody that signed up. So you know, spending three or four days delivering seventy five kits of sake, and then everybody got on the phone and and you know learned a little bit about sake and and got a little pickle together. It was really really fun. Um, we started a virtual happy hour uh, to bring people together, and and again would do home deliveries of of booze and and some snacks, and and everybody get together. We did trivia nights online. Um, we did some big talks with with people. One of the advantages, uh, oddly enough, was that we our audience became much wider, so we could access speakers, um, you know, in different time zones in different countries without without having to pay. So that was that was terrific. Um, and then. Uh, and so that was during lockdown. And then we came mm -hmm. out of lockdown. Singapore was amazing. You know, like the Singapore government, the job support scheme and the rent relief for, for um, hospitality industry was absolutely terrific and, and was the difference between life and death for us as well as many, many companies. Um, when we came out of lockdown, uh, it became clear that the member club model was very quickly the darling of the hospitality industry, if you like. So a lot of, um, you know, I mean, the, just the bookings went through the roof and actually we, we reached capacity and, and we sort of had a problem and, and it, it remains somewhat true to this day that, you know, people are very frustrated because the club is, is too busy and, and they, they get upset because prior to COVID they could walk into the club on a Friday night and get a table and, and you just can't do that right now. And you can't do that at, at many places, Yeah, you know, because all the underlying assumptions, you know, on any given day pre-COVID, 60% of our membership is, is flying around the region or the world, right? But right now, 100% of your people are still in Singapore. So we had to adjust that way. We made much more uh, space available for people to work from, uh, because obviously, you know, work from home was driving some people mad. So they, they sort of come down to the club and park themselves at a, at a desk and so we, you know, hustled to buy new furniture and to to do some renovations. We tore down a wall. Um, we created smaller spaces uh, so that social distancing was was there, uh, or we could observe social distancing rules. And then we looked to create products. And by that I mean we did tables of five. One of the things we learned very quickly was that people were lonely, you know. And, mm -hmm. and people had pretty much gone through the entire carousel of Tinder three or four times. And they were like, yeah, how do I meet a new person? And when, when you had the table of five, like, you know, every restaurant, it really meant you were hanging out with the same friends all the time, right? You, you, you didn't get to go and mingle with new people. So we created this thing called table of five and we just invited single people to sign up. And, and so generally you arrived at dinner and you didn't know any of the other four people. And then we have these cards. We play the secret supper games. We have these cards with, with really sort of fun questions that, that kind of reveal your, your either innermost secrets or your values or, or what have you, right? Some of them are funny and some of them are serious. And we place those under your plate and people pick them up and inevitably somebody cries. Uh, people wind up in couples. Uh, it's really amazing. Mm, it's amazing how you guys pivoted so fast and, um, you know, mm. going online and trying to form partnerships during the pandemic. So that is obviously the best part of your job, right? But let me ask you, what's the worst part about your job, Mark? Spill yeah. the details. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's such a tricky question. I don't think I've ever, I've ever thought about this. But I, I suppose the thing that we are maybe most proud of is, is the staff. The team that we work with are incredible. 
And we have, I'd say, our own flavor of hospitality. And it, it comes very much from the, from the, you know, the ethos of the business and which is, you know, just be nice to people. And I would say the hardest part is um, finding and retaining the best staff. And, and by the best staff, I don't mean sort of, you know, we, we don't look for that sort of white glove uh, five-star service. That, that's not sort of what we're really about. What we love is when we meet people who can instantly form friendships um, through basically through empathy, right? Like I think it's the most elegant thing in the world when, when you can host somebody and, and make them feel fantastic. And we have a philosophy that we treat our guests, the guests of our members even better than we treat our members because we think it's a compliment um, and it makes you very proud when you're a member and you bring somebody and, and they turn to you and say, wow, you know, your staff treated me really well and, and took really good care of me. Uh, that's, that's an awesome thing. But uh, it's super tough right now, um, you know, to uh, certainly to, to, to get people here. Um, I think there, there are very important reasons why we can't have as many um, S passes or W passes or, or, or even employment passes. So it's, it's um, harder to bring in talent from overseas right now. And I, I understand why. Uh, and it's also harder to retain staff, um, Singaporean staff, um, because there's so many options out there, you know, and, and people will jump ship and, and it, it, you know, and I'm, of course, people have to go and pursue their dreams and, and do their thing, but it's always like, a, it always sort of breaks your heart a little bit when, when someone, particularly from the opening team says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to work somewhere else, or I'm going to start my own venture or whatever. That's hard. I, I just... I don't think it's a difficult thing. It's just something that, that it's like, oh, that's so sad. But yeah, it's life. If you don't mind me asking, so I'm going to digress a bit from the topics of advertising and 1880, okay? So according to your company's website, you are a cosplayer. So what do you cosplay as? And is that a side passion of yours also? Wait, what? <laughs> Apparently the website says that you're a cosplayer. What? Well, I don't even know what that means. I, like, are you sure that's our website? Yes. I've been like costumes. Yes. Someone is getting fired because I didn't know that anybody wrote that anywhere. (laughs) Uh, But that's hysterical. Uh, The reason that, okay, let me explain that. It's not like a fetish. I don't have like a Barbie outfit in my closet. Um, (laughs) But I do find it really fun when we hold parties to show up and not be recognizable. You know, I, so um, so one year we did an amazing um, Studio 54 party and I came dressed as a woman. You know, I, I did probably three hours of makeup with, wow. a, with a makeup artist and, uh, you know, wore, you know, kind of seven inch heels, I think, and and uh, and a dress and, and the whole thing. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been more uncomfortable in my life. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I was not even remotely attractive. So I, I, that was humiliating and, uh, and, and thank God most people didn't know who I was. So that started a thing off and then, and then other parties I've, I've dressed up and people have not known who I was. And, and, and so that is somebody making fun of me on our team. So that, that's cool. That's hysterical. I didn't know that existed. I should okay. look at that. So just <laughs> confirm that is not another side passion of yours, right? It's just, it was just a one-off uh, thing. No, I guess. <laughs> definitely not. That's too funny. No. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. So if you could turn back time and take a different path, would you do it? Why or why not? Yeah, I guess I would not dress up as a woman that night. That, <laughs> that would be the first thing. Um, would I choose a different path? You know, I, this is this is complicated because I, I we were just talking about the phrase, um, oh, I don't have any regrets in life. And it's a very immature thing to say at the end of the day, because of course you should have regrets. To, to acknowledge that you regret something is to acknowledge that maybe you made a mistake and, and therefore your future can be corrected and, and you can do better the next time round. So I'm not gonna say, oh, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, there are decisions that I took, uh, particularly you know, if, I, if I think about um, uh, procrastinating on the big decisions that I, I should have taken in the agency when, mm -hmm. when the revenue were not coming in, you know, yeah, I wish I'd, I'd made decisions sooner. Uh, I definitely learned from that. Um, I guess there are, there are certain things that I would, I would definitely not do again. Um, but for the most part, I have, I'm, I'm super grateful for everything that's happened. Uh, and I could not be more proud of 1880. Like I just, I think that's the yeah, it's, it's super cool. I'm very, very happy with it. Okay. Um, one last question for you. And it's the question that I think you would enjoy answering. At this point in your life, would you ever return to advertising? <laughs> no, I made that mistake once. No, I'll not do that again. Um, but uh, but look, I mean, I think there are there are far smarter people who can comment on on the state of the advertising industry and and the direction that it's going in. You know, and I I think Elon Musk said something very clever when he's like, when the smartest people in the world are trying to get you to click on a thumbs up. Um, that there's something wrong with the world. So, so I, anyway, I'm not going to beat up on on all things digital, but I love the fact that I'm in an analog business. That we are we are very very high touch human to human business, and and that to me is extremely important. You know, we get to work with amazing agencies, and I find that the smartest people in the ad industry are are changing the way people think in a very positive way. And they're 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 helping brands become better versions of themselves. You know, I, I look at the. At, I was just talking to somebody from from Stan Chart the other day about about their whole campaign, the whole ethos, and and when you get a CEO, you know, like Microsoft has become a completely different company in in just seven years. It's it's amazing, and and ad agencies get to do that work. They get to you know, get right into what does a company think? Why is it here? Whose problem is it trying to solve? And then build this incredible emotional attachment to that product or service. And I, I think that is a noble cause, you know? So for, for the most part, I think advertising is an awesome, awesome industry. Um, but I'm I'm in no rush because I'm in the happiest place I can, I can be. And I, I don't think I ever wanna, I never wanna work in another company. You know, like th this is it. 1880, I, I hope, is the thing that I do uh, for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Life After Advertising. To stay on top of trends, learn to reskill and upskill your capabilities and grow your professional network, head over to www.marketing-interactive.com. Subscribe to our Telegram channel too at Marketing-Interactive. See you there.